Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with super agent Lee Steinberg. Oh, sweet. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we're joined by a real-life super agent. He's negotiated over $3 billion in contracts for his clients over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Steinberg. Lee, thanks for coming on the program. I'm so happy to be with you, especially with the all-star second baseman. (laughs) Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. I got a lot of questions for you. First one. You were an RA at Cal, at Cal Berkeley, and on your floor, your first your first client ends up being Bartkowski, but there's also a, a guy by the name of Steve uh, Wozniak, the number two or, or kind of uh, the co-founder of Apple was Steve Jobs. What was he like? That was That's what stood out. That was an interesting fact when reading about Lee Steinberg. So he was uh, a little bearded fella. And one of his pranks was to set all the phones ringing in the dorm in a way where they couldn't be turned off. So he was always coming up with ingenious uh, pranks uh, that involved electronics. And um, But the athletes in the dorm loved him because he'd figure out ways for them to do free long-distance calls and... Um, all the rest. So uh, we had another fella who was a long-distance runner named uh, Brian Maxwell who went and uh, founded Power Bar, the, the energy bar. And so it was quite an eclectic crew. Yeah, it sounds interesting. And I, I could imagine back then, you know, the electronic – I mean, still to this day, Lee, I, I have a – tough time working my phone and I ask my kids, Hey, can you help me out with this? And, and they're always giving me that tough love. Like dad, you got to learn now I'm going to teach you, but you're going to do it for yourself. I get a little frustrated, but I completely understand that. But yeah, that, that the electronics back in the day, uh, really interesting, really interesting. Um, you were born and raised in Los Angeles. What was Lee Steinberg like, uh, as a little kid? Um, I was a huge sports fan. Uh, I grew up on the L.A. Dodgers, and Sandy Koufax was the star pitcher, and we loved him, and Maury Wills was a big base stealer. So my parents had a bunch of degrees from UCLA between them, so I was raised a a Bruin boy. Um, And my uh, dad had two core values, which were, treasure relationships, especially family, and make a difference in the world. So I was sort of hardwired to help other people. And um, uh, I had a grandfather who ran a place called Hillcrest Country Club, and it's where all the movie stars hung out. So I have a picture sitting on Marilyn Monroe's lap, and the comedian George Burns and my grandpa took me to my first baseball game and it was uh, still the Hollywood stars. It was uh, Pacific coast league baseball. And uh, so it was sort of unusual, but uh, I started at UCLA and then ended up at Cal Berkeley and the 
tumultuous days of the 60s. Yeah, that back in the day, you know, and I, I remember when my grandpa was alive, I was I was very close with him. And he'd tell me stories, you know, Gramps, I think Gramps, my Gramps played from 47 to, to 59. And he told me some of those stories. And he told me about the Coast League and the Coast League back then. That was a big deal. Now it's, a, you know, Pacific Coast League. I played in it and it's AAA in the minor leagues for, for the big league affiliates. But back there, back then, the Coast League was kind of a, a big deal. You mentioned the Hollywood stars. Um, you grew up, you were a Dodger, you're a Dodger fan. Makes sense. You were in, you were in Los Angeles. Did you, did you play sports as a kid? Um, well, I played every sport, uh, but in high school, of course, I played baseball and uh, football and basketball. But um, uh, we we also had the um, we we had the Hollywood Stars and and we had the Angels, and they were. Uh, but but I can still remember there were the Seattle Rainiers and the Oakland Oaks and the San Francisco uh, 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 Seals and. Uh, and the Vancouver Mounties and and uh, the San Diego Padres and and we thought it was real baseball and some of the stars from that era went on, but uh, when the Dodgers came in 1958 and then uh, the Angels came in 1961, uh, we just were baseball crazy and the Dodgers marketed. Uh, Southern California, like it was Des Moines, Iowa, and we had Vin Scully's voice, and we had uh, the fact they did uh, AAA night, and uh, and uh, they did uh, Boy Scout night, and they did uh, Kiwanis night, and there were uh, we just fell. It didn't matter who was pitching; it didn't matter uh, what the opponent was. It was all uh, go to a Dodger game. You said you started at, at UCLA. Um, I was an SC guy, so you know we were quite at odds. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the the USC UCLA. <laughs> I I loved it. I loved coming over when I when I was at USC. I'd love coming over and hanging out in Westwood. But you only went there for a year, and you transferred to Berkeley. What was the reason for that? Um. Well, the year I spent at UCLA was great. The center on the basketball team was a fellow named Luau Cinder, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and we were national champions. But uh, rock music was at uh, Cal, and and uh, the war in Vietnam was going on, and, and it was everything that was active in the student world was uh, at Berkeley, and somebody put uh, the doors light my fire on a set of earphones on me uh, for all Cal weekend, and I, I knew I sort of had to be there. And uh, uh, so it was really exciting. I ended up uh, student body president, and the governor of California was Ronald Reagan. So every time we demonstrated, he cracked down, and uh, everything I needed to learn about the art of negotiating, I learned from interacting with then-Governor, later President Ronald Reagan. Wow, that's pretty awesome. And, and the art of negotiation, I want to get into that later. I've I've been taught a, a few lessons along the way in my journey as a player, and, and uh, it's, really, it's really fascinating. Um, went to Berkeley. Uh, why'd you want to be a lawyer? And was it always... Uh, 
for the reasons that the avenue that you pursued um, as an occupation? No, Brett, really, um, there was no organized field of agentry when I started. Teams could hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. So, uh, no, I thought I was going to change the world and and be a civil liberties or civil rights uh, attorney. And uh, because Bartkowski ended up the very first pick in the first round of the uh, NFL draft, um, he asked me to represent him. And I had uh, was choosing between uh, different jobs like the Alameda County District Attorney and, and civil litigation. And but Bartkowski had been the first pick in the first round, and the World Football League was competing against the NFL. We got the largest rookie contract in NFL history, and uh, we flew into Atlanta the night before we signed the contract, and there were big lights, Klieg lights, like for a movie premiere, and the huge uh, crowd was pressed up against the police line, and the first thing we heard was we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski and his attorney, Lee Steinberg, have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live for an in-depth interview. And I looked at him probably the way that Dorothy looked at Toto when they got to Munchkinland. And I said, I know we're not in Berkeley anymore. And that was when I saw the idol worship and veneration that athletes were held in communities across the country. And, and I thought, well, um, if an athlete would go back to the high school community and set up a scholarship fund or work with the church or boys and girls club, they could lay down roots there and make a difference off the field. And if they'd go back to the collegiate community and set up, a scholarship fund like Troy Aikman did at UCLA, um, they could meet those alums and set up their second career. And at the pro level, if they would set up a uh, charitable foundation with leading business figures, political figures, and uh, community leaders, um, they could uh, pick some cause they'd like to deal with. So that's like work done, um, being the, uh, putting the 200th single mother and her family in the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and moving them in. So it's athletes changing lives. And that's how it began. But again, there was no organized field when I started. Yeah, it's really great. I've told the story before my, uh, my grandpa told me this story he said, and this is during the middle of my career. And he said, Brett, you know that I led the league in RBIs one year as well. And I said, yeah, really, Gramps. I said, did you get a big pay raise? And he told me the story, how I forget the year, but you're right. There was no agents back then. He went into his owner's office with his contract that they had tendered him. And it was like $27,000. And he said, well, I really think by leading the, R- the league in RBIs last year, I should get a significant bump. And he said he ended up coming out of the coming out of his owner's office, and they said, "Ray, we we can finish third with or without you leading the league in RBIs." And he gave him a thousand dollar raise, and that's how it was back then before uh, pioneers like yourself and and uh, 
others kind of paved that road. And, and that's when the athletes started getting some representation and, and started to get their, their piece of the pie, if you will. Uh, I had a, a gentleman uh, that has passed away recently um, that represented me. His name was Tom Rich, and he was one of the pioneers. He was very involved in in the in the union of, of Major League Baseball uh, back in the day. And, and uh, he had some real fascinating stories about the early 70s. You know, my dad had a, a gentleman by the name of Arthur Rosenberg, who wasn't that well known, but was on the East Coast. And I think he had Mike Schmidt and, and my father and a few others. But uh, you kind of you kind of uh, revolutionized this and, and what it has become. Uh, do you feel, do you feel that about the, the kind of the, the, I'm looking for the word, the road that you paved? Well, <clears throat> think about this. When I began, um, let's take football. Each team is their share of the national television contract got $2 million dollars. The franchises that came in, Tampa Bay and Seattle, were valued at $16.5 million. Um, Bartkowski's contract that broke records was for a total of $600,000. His salaries were 40, 60, 100, 150, and that made newspaper headlines around uh, the country. And um, uh, it wasn't until the baseball union and Andy Messerschmidt fought for free agency and until and, and football free agency didn't come till 1993. Uh, before that, um, they had a clause where a football player um, could be renewed for 10% raise. So let's say he was making $200,000 any his next contract should be for eight hundred thousand dollars. As long as they were willing to pay him two hundred twenty thousand dollars, he was their property forever. So the process of negotiating was really dignified begging, um, and free agency and later arbitration broke it open for baseball players. And uh, I had my first baseball player in the seventies. He was Carney Lansford who won the uh, American League batting championship and then uh, a reliever for uh, the Dodgers, Tom Needinger. But in uh, football, I started and eventually had 64 first-round draft picks. In baseball, we had ended up with about 35 first-round draft picks. And um, when free agency came to football, it uh, exploded the market, but it was a long time coming. And in those early days, uh, the only option was to hold players out, which uh, at a certain level was just self-destructive because it harmed the beginning of their careers. I'm interested in the very beginning when you first started this and, and agents in that space were, were a new thing. How were you, how were you looked upon? by the industry as a whole. And as far as you, you, we talked about Bartkowski being a, a friend of yours in college at UCLA. It, so it makes sense how uh, you and him became partners later in life. But in the very beginning, how was, what was the recruiting process like? Was it, was it something that you reached out or, or did it become a word of mouth thing? 
even if it was word of mouth, it still was competitive. And um, generally, I tried to profile athletes who would be interested in our concept of role modeling, that they had an obligation to um, retrace their roots and set up these charitable and community programs. So I was looking for athletes that were self-starters, that would be really active in building a second career, that would um, uh, understand that they had a higher obligation in terms of behavior to represent the sport well. And um, so I would try to research that type of family. And then normally you would meet with the parents first and they would um, have a series of questions. You'd have a first meeting. You might never meet the athlete themselves until well after you'd had a series of meetings um, with the parents and they would screen and then they would narrow it down uh, to a few. As the years went on, uh, I had, there were weekends in football where I was representing half the starting quarterbacks. And in 1985, I had a partner, Jeff Morad, who had a, um, uh, helped to head our baseball practice. And we ended up signing players like uh, Will Clark and Matt Williams and Pudge Rodriguez and Sean Green and um, uh, and and so then it we we did have referrals uh, but and a lot of word of mouth but still it might be a referral where you would still be competing with two or three other groups and again it was a match of values most important skill Brett was listening it was getting into the heart and mind of another human being and understanding what their values were. So if you would create enough space and trust with another person so they would reveal their deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams, if you could put yourself in the other person, that young man's heart and mind, and see the world the way they really saw it, not surface responses, then you could bond at a deeper level and help to fulfill them uh, for who they really were. You mentioned uh, Jeff Morad, who, who, yeah, was was pretty prevalent in the baseball space. And Dunn was your was your other partner. You sold that practice in 1999. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, on any given Sunday, pardon that pun, but you could have half the starting quarterbacks under your kind of umbrella. It's, it's always, and, and I talk to my agent to this day, it's Adam Katz and, and how he interacts, you know, you're going to the postseason. You've got a couple guys on one side. Uh, you got a couple clients on the other team and let's call it all equal. You, you really like everybody equal, during the game, you're sitting there. What's going through your mind? Are you thinking? I, I try to put myself in that position all the time. Like when when my brother was playing or or my dad's working for an organization, who do I pull for? Well, I just kind of pulled for them to do well. And then whatever happens, happens. Because I don't have any control over it anyway. It doesn't matter what I'm pulling for or cheering for. Um, did, did you ever have a conflict or it was just, nope, I've got quarterback on both teams and hopefully they both have a good day and whoever wins, wins? 
I, I think you described the emotion uh, uh, perfectly. Um, I, I remember uh, there was a Super Bowl in Arizona where I had all seven, well, like six of the quarterbacks on the roster. Um, it was Troy versus <laughs> Neil O'Donnell, but I also had Cordell Stewart and uh, Wade Wilson and Jason Garrett. But the worst part was I had uh, the defensive backs who were picking off my quarterbacks or I remember one time there was a highlight reel of Bruce Smith, the defensive end, who was my client, who was the all-time sack leader. And they had a highlight reel and he kept sacking the quarterbacks. But the problem was it was Drew Bledsoe. It was uh, Mark Brunel. It was uh, Neil Lomax. It was all my quarterbacks. So the game just sort of plays out. My job though Post game was to uh, go console the loser. So the winner would be just fine post game, and I, I'd see him eventually. But where I needed to be was with the person who needed consoling. And you mentioned at the beginning it, w- it was important for you uh, when choosing a client or, or seeing if it was a fit to go talk to their family, go talk to their parents. And, and interesting enough, you know, when we're young and we sign our contracts and we're drafted, all of a sudden, years later, now it's not mom and dad anymore. It's spouse and, and kids. How does that uh, relationship between agent and player morph as time goes on? Because all of a sudden, you know, you draft this kid get drafted at 21 years old. Yes, the parents were very involved, a a big part of those decisions. Now, all of a sudden, it's 15 years later and he's got a full on family and and you're friends with the with the spouse uh, or significant other. And now all of a sudden it's no, I've got to kind of kind of manage everybody and, and give the best advice I can on all fronts. Cause I know uh, in certain, you know, certain situations, you might get a call from a wife saying, Lee, what do you think about this? Tommy's, you know, Tommy, I'm just using it as a, as an example, the name uh, he's thinking about this. What do you think? Or is, is, is that something that would happen quite frequently? You'd get call from other family members. Absolutely. Um, so um, <laughs> it's, uh, it can be a political tightrope at times. And uh, so it's, I, I would take a piece of paper and on it I would uh, show the athlete and then the concentric dots around him, which would be mother, father, sister, brother, girlfriend, uh, pastor, uh, high school coach, uh, college coach, physician coach, trainer, that whole constellation, you know, best friend. uh, And you end up interacting with all of them and uh, becoming friends with all of them. And, uh, you know, your hope is that they understand that the athlete at the end of the day needs a certain amount of focus to be able to perform. And, uh, uh, but certain uh, situations are difficult, like like tickets. <laughs> tickets. Right. Um, Who gets them? <laughs> yeah, as if the athlete, you know, the night before the game didn't have a few things to focus on, right? And um, But, you know, it becomes um, incumbent to have positive relationship with everyone around uh, the athlete and, and um if, if those relationships are positive, um, but 
the athlete needs to set some boundaries um, early on with his friends about what he will be able to or won't be able to do in terms of helping them, accommodating them, and all the rest. Otherwise, it becomes really difficult to, to manage the expectations of everyone around them. And I'm sure this has a lot to do with each individual client and their personalities. And you mentioned the political tightrope. Uh, I could only imagine because it's like, well, my client is X. He's making the money, but I've got his significant other calling me and there's a conflict here. So you're right. Uh, (laughs) The politics of it do come into play. But how candid can you be? with a client does it come down to personalities or or did you have kind of a formula with everybody is no i'm gonna i'm gonna be as candid as i can with him at all times so um here's the thing um you, you part of when i said listening was the key at a certain level um all human beings are sensitive and um so there's a way to talk to each person that's different. Um, but at a certain level, my job is to deliver truth and reality basing to everyone. There are agents who their clients standing on the ledge outside of a 90 story skyscraper. And they're surrounded by sycophants and and posse that says law of gravity doesn't apply to you. You can jump. You can fly. Uh, right. Don't let anybody tell you you can. And <laughs> my job is to say um, you've got to step back from the ledge <laughs> because if you jump, you'll kill yourself. And that may not be what the person wants to hear at that moment, but um, I'm not part of that unrealistic posse. Um, I've got to speak truth to the client about the dangers that they're facing if they move this direction or that direction. And I might not be harsh in doing it, but... um, you know, no one ever got fired for stoking the most unrealistic um, expectation in their client, but you're not helping them. And um, part of the relationship has to be that someone has to speak truth to them, and that's got to be part of my role. Another thing is is that the players association uh, and agents, you know, they get very involved in negotiations. Um, I was a, I was a player rep for the Cincinnati Reds. My dad uh, during his time playing was a national league rep. So he had a, you know, he had a, a little more uh, work to do than I did. I would just sit in on the meetings. We were on strike in 1994. It was a nightmare. They canceled the world series and I'm sitting on these conference calls saying, you know, I'm just a kid going, well, when are we going to play again? You know, and it was a learning, it was a real learning experience for me. I got, I got a, 
quite the educational process, what it was like sitting across from those owners and, and the back and forth and what goes on. It was fascinating and, and I loved it. And I suggest every young player, hey, get involved, uh, educate yourself. I, th- I think it'll, it'll serve you well in the long term. The contracts you sign, and, and there's so much pressure, especially nowadays, and probably that comes from the Players Association to get the biggest dollar numbers. Get that, keep it, keep it going up. Keep that mountain going, going higher. And if you have a high, um, you know, a high level client that's due to get paid, but maybe he comes to you and he says, Lee, I really like where I'm playing right now. I like how I'm raising my family there. And if we've got to take a little less money to stay here, we'll do it. As an agent, when when you have that, and I'm saying probably nowadays that doesn't happen too often. It's give me the most and and find me where I'm, tell me where I'm headed. Uh, when you have that, though, is there any pressure on you to to the industry, or or do you just serve the client and and make him as happy as possible? You serve the client, and uh, that that ultimately my job is to fulfill that one human being. So you sit down in a process like free agency and you make a list of values, short-term economic gain, money that comes quickly, long-term economic security, geographical location, the weather, the lifestyle, um, uh, family considerations, um, the, the being on a winning team, the quality of uh, coaching, the uh, facility, um, you know, the stadium, the, the training facility, um, the endorsement market, um, the, the uh, you know, be, being a starter, obviously, um, quality of coaching, the, uh, and you make a list of all these considerations and you rank them, um, and then you take the options and you fit them in, and and you rank them. So, for example, if location or winning or any of these things is uh, uh, first or second, you know, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It's if if you know you'll be happier in Southern California. Or conversely, you'll be happier in uh, Milwaukee. Um, and there's something magical about the team chemistry that's going to make you a happier human being. And the difference between $36 million and $38 million is, is nothing you'll ever feel because you're already wealthy and, and you'll be wealthy in need of the situation, but your day-to-day life will be much happier or your family will be happier. Um, that's a rational decision that someone can make. And a third party um, doesn't really have the right to define what will make you happy. Um, Height of your career, Lee Steinberg. It's Steve Young, Warren Moon, who's been on the podcast. Troy Aikman, we had Bledsoe uh, come on the the show earlier. Jerry Maguire was kind of based on it was kind of based on you and one of my favorite movies, by the way. And uh, 
what did that what did that movie get right and what did it get wrong? Because there's so many sports movies made. I'm very critical of the baseball side, but when others, I just take it, you know, I, I can tell, oh, that doesn't seem right. But what did that movie Jerry Maguire get right and wrong? Well, I did was technical advisor on one baseball movie. It was called For the Love of the Game, and I hope you got that you felt we got that mostly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, there's a few. There's a few. Um. So uh, Cameron Crowe called me up in 1993, um, and he had gone underground in a Los Angeles high school to write a book called Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I thought it was a pretty hilarious movie, so he wanted to follow me around and be a fly on the wall to uh, pick up atmosphere for a film based on a sports agent. And so he started following me in 1993 and he went to the NFL draft where Drew Bledsoe was the first pick and, you know, he met Drew and he met his father and he followed me around and watched the atmosphere and he met people. And I told him stories, lots of stories like, like what would my biggest fear be? Well, what if Drew actually was going to, change his mind and tomorrow morning I would find out he wouldn't be my client. Right. So, um, then we went to league meetings where I was marching around a free agent named, uh, Kim McDonald, who was a strong, uh, safety and we were taking him to different, uh, teams and, um, they went upstairs in the, uh, Palm desert Marriott and Lou Dobbs and Moneyline was on CNN in the background and Cameron asked him what he was looking for in a team. And he said, I'm looking for a team to show me, um, some respect. I'm looking for a team to show me some winning. I'm looking for a team to show me a big economic package. And, uh, Cameron wrote the line, show me the money. And, um, then he went with me to, um, pro scouting day at USC and to a bunch of games and to sat in my office and went to the Super Bowl and I told him stories, lots and lots of stories. And so a lot of it found its way into uh, the script. And then as technical advisor, I had to vet the script to make sure the look um, wouldn't, wouldn't jar you and the, and, the, and the dialogue wouldn't be phony. Um, there's one scene where, where, uh, the Rod Tidwell wide receiver character gets hit on the field, a concussive event, and then he jumps up and is dancing around. So obviously Cameron knew that was poetic license because that doesn't happen. But other than that, it ought to feel real. And I was on the set for number of the scenes like the workouts and to, to make sure that, that they felt real. And, uh, I actually took Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, who played the wide receiver, uh, with me down to the Super Bowl, And he had to pretend he was a, my wide receiver client all week. And he hung out with Amani Toomer and Desmond Howard. Uh, actually I had to show the quarterback played by Jerry, O'Connell had to throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have a football program there. And uh, 
So it's been 25 years, and I've rarely gone out to dinner or been in an airport where someone didn't run up to me and either say those four words or ask me to say them to start with, show me the... <laughs> yeah, I oh, and I still love that, but I was in the middle of my career at that time, early in my career, and I remember when Roy Firestone... He said, it's just hot off the presses and he gives him four. I forget what the number amount was, but it was roughly, you know, what what was applicable in that time frame? Four years, 10 point whatever million dollars. And I remember I was sitting there and because and, I was negotiating with the Cincinnati Reds at the same time. Jim Bowden was the uh, was a general manager in Cincinnati. And I remember that's the deal I need right there. The one that Tidwell just got. <laughs> so so I have fond memories and I go back and I can't believe you know, it's that long ago. I mean, we're coming up on 30 years and it seemed like it was just yesterday. I was watching that. And, uh, I, I think, you know, the whole, well, and, it then, was, it, and, and then, uh, Cuba Gooding breaks down and then, um, they go backstage and then I introduce, uh, uh, Jerry Maguire to Troy Aikman as the next scene. Wow. Did, did you find that, like you said, you had Cuba Gooding. Did you find taking him around and putting him in that atmosphere? Uh, because you know how athletes are. We go to, we like to go to concerts and rock concerts and go backstage and talk to our favorite artists. Uh, that's cool for us because we don't get to do that all the time. Did you find that Cuba being around all the athletes, you really enjoyed that like a little kid? Oh, here's what's funny. So... Cameron says to me, now, you know, I know these athletes are hard drinking and this and that, so just make sure you keep an eye on Cuba. And so we're out one night, and uh, it's, it's about time for last call, and the athletes are all completely wiped out, and Cuba is up tap dancing on the bar. So he completely outlasted every athlete. And uh, he, he was he was much more hardcore. It took him to Super Bowl, and uh, he was in his element. And uh, we we were like driving around in my limo, and he the windows open, and he's talking to his fans. <laughs> and he was yes, he was very animated. I remember I, I met Cuba. I played one year in uh, for the Padres in 2000 and uh, he must've been shooting a movie or something in uh, during that time. Cause he would, he was right off on deck and uh, you know, he'd talk to me every time I was on deck getting ready to go hit. And I know he's, he's, he's a big sports fan. So that was uh, right. yeah, very cool. And you, you mentioned for the love of the game and any given Sunday, which is a, another Costner, uh, I really like that one too. All right, but I want to I want to get uh, into well, your. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, any given Sunday, uh, I won't embarrass him, but there was a rapper who was supposed to play the quarterback, and Oliver Stone was the director. And Oliver asked me to look at the throwing motion of the of the um, quarterback and the rapper, and I said, Oliver, there are powder puff quarterbacks in college who threw better than this fellow. You can't use him or you're going to have to double him in every action scene. And so they fired him and it gave a young comedic actor his first 
dramatic role, and that was uh, Jamie Foxx. So it was fun working with him, and and I had fun putting uh, uh, Al Pacino into role, and then I had the tough job of putting Cameron Diaz into her role as a female owner of what that would be like. So uh, that was a, f- a fun one. I remember being in the locker room showing the football players how to, you know, pop their uh, uh, pop their uh, protective pads, and uh, uh, so that was a fun one too. You know, you you bring up a great point because that is so important. Like you said, I can't have him on screen throwing like that because it's not realistic. That's what, you know, when I'd watch baseball movies, I mean, I'm a biggest critic on that. I'll, I'll see a double play being turned. And I'm going, this guy probably never played out of JV in high school, but he's selling it to the crowd. But it's really bothering me. You know, the thing with baseball movies that for years and years, the uh, just the way they'd uh, stereotype, you know, it seemed like the 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 director would just put a uh, tobacco in everybody's mouth and just have them spit. Because that's what baseball players do when it's far from that. Yeah, we all, you know, most of us like tobacco in some capacity, but I don't know the layman approach to it. Just the people that are on the ground floor doing it for a living. It drives you crazy and you really critique it. That's why on the football side, I don't critique it quite as much. As long as you throw decent and and you look athletic going out for a pass, I kind of give you a pass on that because it wasn't my sport. Well, but. Um, when we were doing for the love of the game, Kevin Kopsner was actually pitching. He yeah, he, you know, he, he played, I think he played at uh, Cal State Fullerton. Yeah. Uh, he because did. he came he in. For, and how we got involved with the uh, movie was that we represented Augie Garrido. Um, yes, and, that makes sense. And he, he was close with uh, Kevin. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I knew Augie for a lot of years. Uh, he passed a few years ago. But Costner, here's here's a Costner story I got for you. So we're we're I'm with the Seattle Mariners. It's the early 2000s. Lou Pinella is our skipper, and uh, we break camp and we're getting ready for the regular season. So let's call it the regular season starts on the third. It's the first. We're going to go to San Bernardino, which is our A ball affiliate for the Mariners. And they've got the big league team coming to town. So they're going to have a sellout. They got their A-ball team ready to go. We're going to have a little exhibition. And we get there. And, you know, we're at the end of spring training. You know, as players, we're done. We're ready for the regular season. We're ready for the for our stats to, to be put on the back of our bubblegum card. Now, all the practice is over. But we have this one pit stop before we go up to Seattle. So we're sitting there. We're getting ready for the game. And this helicopter comes flying in. And we had heard there was going to be something going on. Costner gets out of the he gets out of the helicopter. He comes up to our uh, locker room at San Bernardino, and he he address, he's got his you know bodyguards with him, and he addresses the team. And he said, guys, I, you know, my dream as a kid was to be a big league baseball player. And uh, you know, I ended up going another route. But I just want to tell you, it's an honor. Uh, they're going to let us me play with you guys for a few innings today. So he unied up and he actually moved around pretty good. I watched him in Bull Durham. He moved pretty good for a catcher. I mean, knowing it's Kevin Costner going, he he pulled it off okay. But uh, he went out and then they had about the third inning. The, the, the regulars got their first at bat through the lineup. 
And then we all came out of the game. And then they had an exhibition where our skipper, Pinella, who probably at the time was 60 years old, he was going to hit off mm-hmm. Costner. So Costner actually pitched an inning. And and did okay. Right. I don't I don't I don't remember what uh, what he got out of it, but I do remember uh, the the players were were kind of impressed. Like we didn't even think he'd be uh, you know formidable at all, and he actually did okay. He played short a couple innings. I mean, he was a little out of his element. Uh, guys coming at you hard, but but he didn't embarrass himself. Let's put it that way. Yeah, he can pitch. Um, famous Super Bowl parties. You kind of started them. How'd they get started? Now there's fundraisers hooked to all these Super Bowl parties that go on every year? So uh, the very first one was in 1985. And uh, I wanted an antidote to the noisy, boozy, super crowded uh, parties um, where you could actually network and talk to another person. I wanted to have a cause-oriented party where we could raise a lot of money for charity and where we combine big business, big politics, big sports, big entertainment. So the first one, it evolved uh, because the first one was in my house at uh, Berkeley and um, there were probably three or 400 people. And um, the next morning when I woke up, uh, a couple hundred were still there sleeping on the couches and all the rest of it. This year it was at Sony Studios, the old uh, MGM, and uh, we we do a lot of things. We give humanitarian awards to an owner, a general manager, a, a coach, a player, a retired player. We uh, have a, a, a health summit on concussions where we have neurologists and we explore prevention and uh, awareness and cure and and we had a brain uh, body lounge i've been putting modalities together that can um, uh, spur energy and productivity in critical moments in games uh, help players recover quicker deal with healing through neuroplasticity, uh, a brain quicker. I think we finally have some solutions to concussion, which are uh, things like RTMS and, uh, uh, and Nestry treatments. But it's, it, Brett, it's things, uh, it's things like uh, hyperbaric oxygen and uh, light stem and uh, stem cells. So we showcase all of that. We raise money for, uh, we've done everything from send a water machine to Haiti in the middle of a hurricane that purified water for 140,000 people to uh, this year we're uh, doing it to the homeless. And I try to pick a iconic thing. One year, Rob Schneider came dressed as uh as Richard Simmons, the exercise guru, but he right. was the bad Richard Simmons, and he ate ding dongs and uh, got drunk under the uh, bar. And they showed it to the real Richard Simmons on Jay Leno that night. Um, so it's um, uh, it, it's we try to put it in an iconic place. Um, so. One year we had the governor of Arizona come and we released an endangered hawk into the wild. So it's, uh, next year will be like the 37th year. And, 
it's a daytime party uh and you know we have african dancers and ventriloquists and it's sort of a circus about around 2003 uh lee steinberg top of the world all the clients all the success you've had and you had some things personally and professionally uh go a little bit south for a while before you would recoup to to modern day um i don't know how much you want to talk about it but was there a time in your life where it was just it's time for a change or, or what went on during those years so um i hit a, a point where my father who was a real rock in my life uh died a long uh tough death from cancer. Um, and then my two boys suffered, uh, from an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa, which led to them both being blind. And then we lived beachside in Newport beach. And this wonderful home we had, uh, was infested with mold and we had to knock it to the ground. And I always expected reverses in business. I knew you could walk in and notwithstanding all the great planning on some project, it might go awry. That didn't bother me, but somehow I had the feeling that I ought to be able to protect the health of uh, my father and, and my boys and, and keep a roof over our head. And so as that started to cascade, I turned to the wrong thing, which was alcohol, and eventually got to the point where um, I had to break denial and realize I had a problem. And um, so at one point, I, I gave the practice to the younger uh, agents and uh, uh, closed up uh, uh, everything and, uh, and went and lived in sober living and worked a uh, 12-step program with a unique fellowship and said, you know, um, those two values that my father had, treasure relationships and uh, make a difference in the world, I was failing. And so I said, well, if nothing else, I'll be a good father and I'll be sober. And so I worked a 12-step program. I, I got part of that fellowship and... Uh, um, and I'm in my 13th year of continuous sobriety, so I ha had to focus on that. And then uh, back in 2013, restarted uh, practice, Steinberg Sports and Entertainment, and eventually started to uh, sign players again and, and wrote my second uh, best-selling book. And I'm now... Um, just signing a contract to do the third and we started a set of uh, agent academies to train the next generation of sports professionals and um, started to put together the uh, we talked about but in 2016 signed the first first round uh, football player and then in 2017 signed Patrick Mahomes and then in 2020, signed to a Tungo by Loa and Jerry Judy, and and uh, uh, all of a sudden things are happy again. Yeah, that's awesome. And and um, you know I haven't talked about it that much, uh, open and publicly, uh, 
but I, I, I hear you're coming up on 13 years of sobriety. I myself am coming up on five years of sobriety. And so I know your path. I, I know, uh, how it gets to you and the denial factor and, and you're not living the life you want to be. You're not being the best, the best man you can be. And, uh, I've taken that route now too. And it, and it's changed my life significantly, you know, especially with, with family members. And, uh, because it's, it's amazing this game that, that we, that we play and, uh, you know, in all the capacities that we are, you on the agent side, me as a player, uh, sometimes it gets away from you. You know, it gets away from you and you think you kind of are uh, bulletproof and, hey, I could do anything because I always have. And people told me I have and, and kind of things get away from you in life a little bit. And uh, it, it's pretty cool that you got a hold of it and you got out of it because uh, not everybody does. And, and it's been a real humbling process for me. Uh, I worked a 12 step program as well. Like I said, I'm coming up on five years and, and uh, it's completely changed my life, my outlook on life, uh, how I go about my life. And, and it's really been something cool. So to hear that story from you was cool because I don't get to share it too much publicly. I figured this was was kind of a good time. Um, you got back on your feet. Uh, you signed Patrick Mahomes. And I believe that's you've had eight one ones in the NFL if I'm not mistaken. And is it true too, that you have Harold Reynolds and, and Chris Young and uh, Eric Karros, some of my favorite guys, and that currently you have Ty France with the Seattle Mariners who finally are going to the postseason. Yes. Congratulations to the Mariners. And uh, I'm still blown away as the Dodgers have won 110 games and they're playing their last one right now. So, as they keep talking about the all-time record that a Seattle team won 116 games. That's right. Because, because we didn't try the 117th. We gave it away. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, you know, it's funny, Lee, going through that, uh, you know, of course I get asked about that all the time because we didn't finish the deal. We didn't end up winning the World Series. Uh it was a magic carpet ride. And I think all of us, we still get together time to time and we look at each other like, how did it not, how did we not win the whole thing? It was one of those years that I've never seen before. I've never seen anything like it. And we were just kind of on that. Yeah, everything's going to work out. And it's the eighth inning and we're losing five to two, but you know, we're going to come back and get them. And more times than not, we would. And we went to that postseason played the Cleveland Indians and we were way better than them and they knew it. And we were going to come in no matter how we played. It was just a formality. We were going to win. Then we're going to go to Yankee stadium. We're going to win there, go to whoever we're playing against in the world series and collect our trophy and go home. That's, you know, and it was almost like, haven't you seen us play this year? Of course this is going to happen. And we were shell shocked. We came at, and, and it wasn't a, an arrogant team, that 2001 Seattle Mariner team. It was a veteran team. It was a great team. Uh, it was a confident team, you know, and I think there is a difference between confident and arrogance, but I'll tell you, we came out of Yankee stadium and, and we ended up losing, I think four games to one. And the look on my teammates faces, almost shell shock, like that didn't really happen. This is not how the perfect season is supposed to end. And, uh, 
you know, I see teams chasing those those big win seasons. I see the Dodgers. They're unbelievable. To win that many games is unbelievable. But don't get your eye off the prize. It's nice to get there. You get home field advantage. But now is when the real when the real season starts, you know, I think the Yankees in the late two thousands, uh, when they had that dynasty, they, they proved that, but, uh, it's interesting and it's so hard. And as you know, you've, you've represented so many clients in your career. Uh, you, you realize how hard it is to win the big one, that super bowl or that world series. It's such a, such a tough thing to do. And, and, and I'm envious of the guys that have multiple rings, but then on the other side, it's, there's so many great, great players that I've played with that never won one. Uh, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. Never, he never got to go to a world series, let alone win one. I, I follow you, but, but, the sort of irony or the strangeness of it is that the Buffalo bills go to four straight, Super Bowls, which means that they're one of the top two teams four straight years, which is impossible to do. But all they're remembered for is losing four Super Bowls. And um, it's it's sort of a strange way to look at it. That instead of being one of the two best teams for four straight years, you know, they're losers. Um, for a team to win 116 games is like impossible. How how could you ever win that many games? I mean, it just it was bizarre. It was it was, it was yeah, really like, bizarre. We started like, in spring. Can we we just started separate those two things and just sit back and admire the stunning achievement of of how could that ever happen, right? It's like baseball. How could you be that dominant for a season? Well, it was one of those spring training. We knew we were good. You know, of course, you don't go into spring training and think you're going to win 116 games. I was just coming from a brave team uh, that went to the World Series. I think we won 104, and it was a great team. Uh, I knew we were good, but I remember Lou Pinella in spring training. We kind of had a rough spring training that year. And I remember I was I was standing next to Johnny Olerud, one of the nicest human beings I've, I've I've ever been around. And Lou said, and he's yelling at us. He's having one of his Lou moments, and he goes, "And I don't care how long you guys been playing. This is a veteran team. You just can't turn the faucet on when we leave spring training." So we we break camp. We win twenty games in April. We win 20 games in May. And I don't know if you've ever met John Olerud, one of the most most humble men I've ever been around. He comes over to me during a pitching change. (laughs) He comes over to second base. And we had just won 20 games for the second straight month. And he looks at me, he goes, hey, remember that that, – that talk that Lou was having with uh, with us in spring training. I said, the one about not turning on the faucet. He, I said, he goes, yeah, he goes, consider that, <laughs> consider that faucet flipped. <laughs> and wow. I started laughing and I just went unbelievable. I mean, we we're sitting there at the all-star break. We had eight guys on the team. Uh, we had a 15 game lead. I mean, I think, I think the Oakland A's that year won 102 games. They lost the division by 14 games. And uh, that was a time where, where that West was really dominant. It was, it was fun, but it, you're right. I, I don't know how we didn't finish it. I don't know how we did, but 
they'll always I'm, have the I'm 116, saying, but I don't have that ring. <laughs> you should bifurcate those two uh, experiences um, because notwithstanding how it ended, 116 still a prodigious achievement. Yeah, and, I, and you know, you get it every year. Um when, when somebody gets out of the blocks hot, the Yankees this year were off to that torrid start. And I was starting to get phone calls. Hey, do you think they're going to win 116 games? I said, no chance. I said, we were, well, and then they said, well, how did you do it? I said, I don't know. I, I think it was a once in a lifetime thing that happens. And we were just happened to be the chosen ones that year. But I know I never think it'll happen again. It's too hard. It's too rigorous of a schedule. You just can't keep that pace up. And usually, you know, to see the Dodgers win 110, that's ridiculous. Before that 116-game season, I'd never got close to 110. And in the last four or five games, they've got like three hits, four hits. Um, You know, they can't do anything. Yep. Um, What is a typical – now, I want to go to here first. What's draft day like for the agent? What's it like for you? Depending on the year? It depends on how many clients you have? Yes, but in a normal year with high draft picks, it's the most exciting day of the year. If we have been in contact with teams, it's not a stunning surprise because um, there's been a fair amount of interaction between teams and uh, and our agents. So um, it's not as if if you have a year with Tuatonga Vailoa and Jared Judy, for example, it's teams are interacting all the way through um, that are interested in uh, Tua or interested in Jerry Duty. And they're, as long as you don't cross-fertilize their information, they're telling you what their intentions are. Now, they're not telling the public what their intentions are. Uh, as a matter of fact, things that you read in the press are... Um, ordinarily have no relationship to their real intentions. Matter of fact, um, if uh, a general manager uh, got to the end of his life and went up to St. Peter at the edge of heaven and St. Peter said, what's the most pernicious sin that you committed on earth? And the GM said, well, I misled everyone as to our draft day intentions, um, and I wasn't truthful. Uh, St. Peter would say, come right in. <laughs> okay, come right in. So, um, but, but they do tell us what they're going to do. So what you've done is generally, unless you're back in the city, but a lot of players would rather be at home where they can have an unlimited amount of family and friends and the high school coach and the, and the priests and, the, um, and all the family members and everything. So you're sitting there. So what you've done is to brief all those people and especially your player on draft order, 
who's most likely to take them and what to watch for. But now you have the tension ratchet up um, with every bit of hope and prayer from that player being involved in Pop Warner and high school football and every hour of practice, all uh, ratcheting up tension-wise to the picks and draft time is not real time. If they're taking 10 minutes, you're wondering why would they take this long? They've already done every computer projection teams have as to who would be available when their time comes. So they know, but they're, uh, talking to other teams about trades. Okay. And so they're talking trade in that moment. So now, it comes down to the last few seconds, and now the pick is made, and the room breaks out in a static uh, uh, joy, and um, it's just a big rush of uh, emotion, and and uh, uh, it's really one of the most exciting moments uh, you could ever experience. Two or three things our listeners need to know uh, when it comes to negotiating. The key is to, first of all, organize your own request list into priorities. What is most important to you that you have to come out of this set of discussions with? And be very clear that some priorities are higher than others. Second of all, put yourself in the heart and mind of the person you're negotiating with and see the world the way that person sees it. What is a win for that person? Understand their environment, what their economics are, what their pressures are, and see if you can craft a win-win scenario where there's a way in which they get what's critically important to them, but you do too. And so both parties walk away happy. Bleed yourself of all emotion going into this negotiating situation. This is not about your ego. It's not personal. It's about trying to either fulfill your client or yourself, but don't use words that are antagonistic or are likely to, to push the other person into a corner and do not push a losing argument to the end. If you can't motivate a point or an argument, don't lock the other party in to being defensive about it. You cannot afford deadlock. So take a break, go for a walk, do something, but don't lock the other party into an intractable um, 
position of rejection. Well, Lee Steinberg, that was uh, that was a really cool. That was a fun show for me to listen to all your your insight and perspective over the years, and and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing your life and, and your story with the Boone podcast. Uh, and what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.